0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Lucy Crean. Lucy is a former science and psychology teacher turned international education consultant and explorer. She is also the author of one of my favourite books of the last few years, Cleverlands. Now, in order to write the book, Lucy helped out in schools and lived with teachers in Finland, Canada, Singapore, Japan, New Zealand and Shanghai, spending a month in each place. As soon as I started reading Cleveland's, I just knew I had to get Lucy on the show to dig deeper into some of her findings and hopefully dispel some of the myths you often hear about education in these higher performing regions. So, in a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the following things and much, much more besides. I start by clarifying just what is a PISA score and how is it calculated. We then journey to Finland to discuss the benefits of a later school start and the use of textbooks. Next up is Japan, where we look at problem solving and differentiation. Then we travel to Singapore to focus on teacher training. Whilst we're over that way, we might as well pop in on China to look at growth mindsets and drills. And then we venture to Canada with age-related expectations and a problem-solving curriculum. We then discuss the role of technology, homework and teacher workload before Lucy reflects on what she has learned on her travels and the reaction to her findings back in the UK. Now, you know what I'm going to say here because I say it all the time, but only because I really, really mean it. I absolutely loved every minute of this conversation. I'm so lucky with the guests who agree to speak to me. Lucy has a unique perspective on education across the globe, having immersed herself in it, speaking and living with teachers, parents and students. This episode is a nice compliment to my second interview with Ed Southall, where we focused on the way maths is taught in Japan, and I discussed two of my own takeaways after the interview. Now, if you buy one book as a result of this podcast, then obviously make it Cleverlands. However, if you buy two then maybe consider snapping up how I wish I'd taught maths. And if you've already bought it, firstly, thank you so much. And secondly, if you have time to give the book a quick review, ideally a positive one on Amazon, then I will be eternally grateful. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Lucy Crean, live from a hotel in Seoul, Korea, speaking to me in my office in Blackburn. I really need to get out more. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Lucy. So we start, as we always do, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why?
1: Terrible start to the interview, I'm afraid, but I genuinely don't have one. Oh, and Lucy. I didn't want to just make up a story. I'm I, sorry. Uh, no, i tell I'm you sorry. what, this Let is, you down
0: this, there, no, you haven't. This is, a. well, you have, you <laughs> definitely have. But this is, this is a trend amongst guests now. Even math, maths teachers seem to be going off favourite numbers. So I can't have too much of a go at you there, Lucy, with that <laughs> one. All right, then, what about this one? What was your favourite topic in maths as a student?
1: Algebra in general, Um, particularly like solving simultaneous equations, just had a nice, relaxing logic to it.
0: Oh, nice! Hey, I like this. You're endearing yourself with our math-listening audience straight away with <laughs> that one. And um, last question, Lucy: If you um, had to have a job that was absolutely nothing to do with education at all, what what would you do and why?
1: I would work in old people policy. That's probably not what it's called officially, but <laughs> the, one of the big, uh, big, big challenges I think is is looking after the elderly and the fact that so many of them are lonely. Um, and something that I really enjoy in my current job is is going and talking to people and finding out what their issues are and what potential solutions might be and then and then making suggestions as to how that might work on a on a bigger bigger level. So I think I could apply those same skills to a different important area.
0: Super fantastic. Uh, right. Well, before we dig into Cleverlands and all that, I just wondered if you could um, talk us through your career to date, Lucy. How, how did you get to where you are now?
1: I started. As a teacher. Um, In fact, before I qualified, I taught in an autistic school for a year. Um, I then did the Teach First programme where I taught science for two years and stayed for a third year, um, mainly teaching psychology and a bit of RE. Um, Then I went and did a master's at Cambridge in education policy, um, partly as a result of some of the concerns that that teaching in the particular context I was in had thrown up um, with regards to how the system was working in England. Yes. Um, so I became interested in, in policy for that reason. Went to study that um, as part of this master's and, and as, a, as a result read quite a lot about different top performing education systems that do well in Pisa, uh, particularly because at the time this was the Gove era um, and Michael Gove was was speaking a lot about top performing systems and the reason that we're doing these reforms is because this is what they're doing in those top jurisdictions. So I, th- I wondered... How, how that was working for them. Um, and at the end of it, I just thought, well, I've got, I, I've managed to save up a bit of money because I made back with my parents while I was teaching, um, wanted to go travelling and thought, why not, you know, it's super geeky, but why not actually go in and spend time looking at these education systems in real life and figuring out um, what they're doing on the ground, what it looks like in the classroom. So I did that. Um, <laughs> I spent a month in six different education systems and, um, in interspersed with doing bits and bobs of freelance consultancy um wrote wrote the book wrote cleverlands um and it's just led to some fantastic opportunities since so um worked for the education development trust for for a year um mainly on on education reform in Brunei which was great um Lots of public speaking these days, bits of consultancy, getting into um, quite an interesting challenge, which is being asked to come and have a look at certain education systems and give an overall big picture view on what I think might need to change. So it's it's all going on.
0: Flipping and of course the highlight of your career is being on this podcast this is this is the kind of well, this culmination it's it all downhill from
1: here <laughs> <laughs>
0: absolutely well <laughs> we are one question away from diving into into clever lucy but to kind of qualify for that i always ask my guests this about a favorite failure so if you can think back to your science teaching days was there a particular lesson that springs to mind that, that didn't go to plan and then what why didn't it work and, and what did you learn from the experience
1: um I had had one on soil acidity with the (laughs) nine.
0: Nice, nice.
1: Now, soil acidity is not the kind of topic that the nine are typically interested in. So I was trying to think (laughs) of ways to make it engaging, and I came up with a whole experiment where they'd be, they had to to use the different acidities of the soil to figure out where the pirate treasure was hidden. And I made a pirate map, and they had to go around the the lab and um and figure out where it was hidden using these techniques. But I plan to spend a lot of time thinking about how do I engage the students in this and little time thinking, this is my my first year of teaching, how do I actually structure and organize them so that it doesn't end up in chaos. Uh, And it ended up in chaos. And there was like, test tubes sort of soil smashed on the floor, (laughs) you know, they're all in, in, you know, really enjoying it. It wasn't that they were, you know, misbehaving per se, but it was chaos. Um, So, so I learned that, you know it's not just about the the fun bit of the planning the creative bit it's also about the structured transitions between different activities
0: that's brilliant yeah a a recurring theme and throughout kind of guests favorite failures on this show is is that planning for engagement is is rarely the way to go and and planning for Mm -hmm. achievement and stuff is is definitely (laughs) better that's brilliant that lucy right well you've given us a bit of a kind of a sneak preview of why you wanted to to write cleveland's but i Mm. I wonder and this (laughs) i mean this makes me sound terrible I always hear about Pisa left, right and centre, and I'm always interested when the Pisa results come out. But it was only when I started reading your book that I thought, right, it's about time I actually got to grips with what on earth Pisa is, how the scores are calculated and so on. So can can you mm-hmm. just give us a bit of a background? Because obviously it plays an absolutely key role um, throughout your book and, and I assume in the choice of the regions that you, you chose
1: to visit. Yes, absolutely. So so PISA um, the first the first PISA test was back in the year two thousand. Um, and it's run by the OECD. And they designed a test that that they say um, measures the the literacy, numeracy and science skills that students need to participate effectively in society. Um, so what that looks like is a um, usually word problems or interpreting data um rather than straightforward factual type questions that students have to answer. It's 15-year-olds that sit it. So a, a representative sample of 15-year-olds from all participating countries, which is, um, I think, all of the OECD countries um, and, and lots of other um what they call partner economies because they're not all um countries some of them are, are yes. um, areas within countries um and the way they calculate it now this is this is where my lack of statistics apologies uh <laughs> comes in that essentially different different students are actually sitting different questions so they all sit the same one test oh, right. um so it's, a, it's based on a variant of matrix sampling so different sets of items um and they then do um, item response theory scaling so that they are able to come up with equivalency um, and that the, the headline scores that you'll see in the papers where they say this, you know, scores gone up or score, scores gone down is the mean. Um, so the mean is the kind of headline measure, but then they would also, what I think is more interesting, they'll report that um, based on levels as well. So up to level six, where level two is what they consider to be the basics that you need to participate effectively in society um so what we want all children to get at least level two and then levels five and six are the top performers
0: i see and and the thing that strikes me about this lucy i've i mean i've been teaching kind of 13 years now i've literally never heard of a a child or a school being in the uk being asked to to put the kids forward for, for pisa like do you have a sense of how many kids in the uk would sit this sit this exam
1: oh gosh um now you got me i don't i'm afraid um that information is on my computer somewhere but oh, my <laughs> we're head.
0: talking in the th- we're in the thousands it's like it's a decent size yes, decent size sample is it right
1: yeah. okay
0: yeah. and it's and it's when you say representative sample so it's it's kids from all kind of demographics or, or regions mm-hmm. across the uk yeah. and so on and yeah
1: and mixture of public and private schools so it's the whole sector not just the public sector
0: Got it. Superb, right? Okay, so you've you've kind of got these kind of PISA scores in front of you. How how did you choose where you were going to visit? Did was it a case of picking the top five, or was was a, a, a different set of criteria?
1: So, in all honesty, um, I originally picked eight. Um, the eight that were the top performers um, on average yes. in two thousand and nine, which is the, which is the data that was available when I set off. Um, but then I realised that actually trying to understand. An education system is actually quite a big undertaking <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you think of all the various different things that had involved, so i'd spent a month in finland a month in canada and a month in new zealand and my head was spinning um and i just thought it's probably too many um and i was also running out of money <laughs> <laughs> um but so so there was a, a kind of a choice at that stage in terms of which ones to drop so i ended up not going to hong kong and korea which were originally on the list because i thought um i was already going to some small um small asian yes. countries and um, singapore and shanghai so systems rather so i thought just in terms of being representative i'd uh, i stick with canada because it's it's diverse and more culturally similar to the uk obviously finland and um, because it's the highest or it was the highest performing european country um and then yes a, a mixture of east asian systems that big and small
0: Got it. Super. Right. Well, well, the plan of action here is we're going to take a little tour around, if we can, five of those regions. I've just got a couple of questions from each. Um, and obviously, mm. we're, just, we're just going to scratch the surface here. And I'm going to advise all listeners to, to go straight ahead and, and buy and read the book if, if you haven't already. Because it, honestly, Lucy, I'm not just saying this. It's an absolutely fascinating read. As I, I was about three sentences in when I thought I've got to get Lucy on the show here to, to read this. Because I, th- <laughs> I think there's so much we Thank can learn you. from this. So right, let's take a trip to Finland first. And, and mm-hmm. one of one of the few things i knew about finland was that they have a um, a later school start um what how late do kids start education and what are some of the kind of positives and negatives um that, that you discovered mm-hmm. from that lucy
1: so they they start formal schooling at age seven in finland which is actually um not atypical internationally i think we are actually more unusual yes um so of the top performing systems i went to they all were starting at school at age six or seven rather than age four or five. Um, what they do have, though, is some high, high quality preschool before that. So it's not the case that children are just at home um, with their parents until age seven. Now it's compulsory for all children to attend kindergarten um, at age six. And it's in the, I think it's like about 93 percent of students would attend for two years before that. So it's, it's fairly well attended. It's not free, but it is subsidized um, and means tested. So the positives of that, I think, are mainly from an inclusion perspective um, in the sense that because you've got during those during those um, early years you'd have qualified teachers or qualified educators running preschool they they still have a curriculum but it's very broad and it's both social and educational so they will be um, playing in kind of very rich um, educational environments developing things like a sense of number um, and some counting and sounds and words and being read stories you know so it's all the kind of things that children need to help them develop the understandings that they need to even start doing things like learning to write or learning to add up um and what that means is that by the time they then start school at age 7 nearly all the children are ready to start with that formal curriculum um in the sense that I think in England we that is not the case I mean in the fact that you look at the attainment differences between some of born children and and the others and you can see that clearly it's just it's not it's not a coincidence that some of one children just somehow less able it's because they haven't had as long to develop those skills that they need to access the curriculum.
0: I see so, and c- can I just ask on that Lucy so because hmm. it's, it's definitely not because when I was reading it I was thinking is it the case that what they essentially do in kindergarten is just exactly what we would do in reception in year one and so on it's just in a different setting but it, are you saying it's it's a completely different kind of setup what's happening yeah. in in kindergarten it isn't this kind of formal sit down at desk we're starting on your maths workbook your spelling and all that no I kind of think it's it's, no, it's, it's, it's it's completely different, different.
1: it's i mean it's not entirely child initiated i think there's a misconception that children just play and that's all they do um there is some teacher-led activity but it's all very playful so the kind of thing might be um children getting the children together in a circle and there's a bunny with some easter eggs in the middle and the children count easter eggs and then turn around and the bunny eats one or takes one away and and then they count them again so they're still you know they're still counting they're still thinking about number same in 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 singapore if i'm allowed to jump over and they're encouraged to do sorting activities with different colored toys and that kind of thing so it's deliberate it's educational um but it's playful um and i think the crucial difference is that the um the assessment there are not assessed expectations for children that are as specific as we have in the uk um which means that teachers aren't forced to be trying to get children to learn things that are just not ready for and obviously that depends on the individual child i'm not saying that at age six children are not ready to do x y and z but some children will be ready sooner and some children won't be
0: Got it, got it. Now that fascinating that, and the and the other thing that the big one that struck me about Finland was when you were describing their approach to maths when when kids actually get to school, um, and I think you said that that lessons are relatively consistent uh, within and across schools, and that there's kind of a, a traditional teacher-led approach, but also substantial whole class interaction. And I mm-hmm. noticed that um, in some of the other countries, you went into real depth about the maths lessons. But I wonder, can you give us a little bit more on Finland there? Did, did you happen to see a, a typical maths lesson? And can you give us a sense of, of some of the kind of main features of it?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, conveniently, I actually asked one of the students to give, I asked her the same question. So I can read you what she said. Oh, brilliant. Um, nice. So I asked Emma, who's 15, I said, tell me what a typical lesson looks like. And when she happened to pick a maths lesson to describe. So here we go. She said, we'd come into class and be seated and go through the homework. If you hadn't done it, there'd be such anxiety because they'd call out random people for the answers. And if they picked you, you wouldn't know. (laughs) Then they'd see if anyone had anything to say about it or anything to ask. Then we'd go through the next subject we were going to talk about, like this is how it works and that's how it goes. And we'd make notes and ask questions and discuss. And then they'd give us some exercises to do from our workbooks. And that will be the rest of the lesson. The teacher would go to individual people if they had questions. But it depends on the subject. It was like that in maths. But in languages, we'd have sets of work like oral pair work and games. So, you know, it's not it's not anything particularly innovative or, or, or interesting. Obviously, there are individual teachers doing some very innovative and interesting stuff in Finland. But in terms of just um, t- what this t- typical maths doesn't look like, they do. they It's fairly textbook based. Um, so, so the vast majority of math teachers report using textbooks in Finland. I think it's about ninety-five percent for as the basis for mathematics lessons. Um, and they'll go through the homework, and they'll. You heard Emma saying, you know, it, it's a kind of no hands up type policy there in terms <laughs> of. Um, they're not. It's not the kind of whole class teaching where some students answer all the questions and some can just sit at the back not listening.
0: I see, and uh, again, it it fascinates me, this uh, Lucy, because you're right. You you read that and you think, okay, that that's not some there's not some kind of magic formula that they're doing Mm. there, but it's it's this consistency of approach. And and one thing that struck me reading the whole book. Was was this use of textbooks? It, it mm. popped, cropped up in a couple of the the jurisdictions that you visited. That a good quality textbook seems to go a long way. Whereas mm. certainly in the UK, since I've been teaching, there's been a real move away from from textbooks, and that's where I think you get into a bit of trouble with teachers having to come up with their own questions. The mm-hmm. the quality may may differ. You, it's also if you have within a school all the teachers following the same textbook then you can have better informed decisions which exercise did you use how did your kids get on with mm-hmm. that and so on whereas when kids are, when, when teachers are using different questions left right and center it's very hard to get that kind of cohesive planning and going does that make sense
1: definitely I mean and I think from from lesson to lesson from term to term from year to year as well because if you if you don't have either a textbook or or a cohesive scheme of work that goes from year to year then chances are there will be gaps and there will be things that actually were explained differently earlier on and than, than they are later that are going to lead to children having misconceptions or confusion whereas if you've got a good scheme of work that is as you know this is as described by one of the teachers i say with you know mot- they're motivating there is not boring dry stuff they've been designed by teachers with students in mind and um, they include suggestions for activities you know they come with um, like a teacher. A teacher pack, some some e-resources that they can use. So it's it's a it's, I mean massive implications for workload as well. Of course, if you've got some experienced math teachers who have actually worked with children in classrooms recently designing your textbooks, um, then you've got half the work done for you. And then it's just a case of making that you're making it your own because obviously. Well, I say obviously for those those of us who have been teachers, it's very difficult to teach from someone else's lesson plan. Yes, um, but this isn't this isn't a lesson plan. This is just a, a set of re- some really good resources that you can then use and then make that suitable for your own class.
0: That's, fact. that's absolutely fascinating that. Right. Well, well, let, let's dive across the world then to Japan, Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, what struck me straight away here is that you, you said in the book that Japan does well on problem solving better than their math scores would, would actually predict. So first, can you explain what you mean by that? And do you, do you have a theory mm-hmm. on why that's the case?
1: So... The OECD don't only measure children's performance in reading, maths, and science. They they're also increasingly trying to measure other important things because they recognize, as I think everyone does, that there are other important things that we do in schools as well. Um, So in 2012, they um, they've attempted to measure creative problem solving. Um, in 2015 they measured collaborative problem solving and they're actually designing a test at the moment of what they're calling global competence so they're really you know pushing the boat out in terms of what, what it's possible to assess which i think is great because i do i do think having you know although you're never going to be able to fully measure things like creativity having something to um to to base to you know to to help us inform decisions about what's working what's not being able to measure something i do think is useful yes um but this this that particular comment on on japan was about this creative problem solving task um which again it, it's um it's based on it's either on computer or or on paper um and it's it's not specifically related to maths or science so it'll be things like you know you've got you're at the train station here are the tickets and you you need to get from this place to this place but not go via this place that you know that kind of thing yes um and they do well at that and my i can only all i can do is hypothesize um but i think it might be because they do regular problem solving in um in lessons um so including math lessons so they will often start the lesson with a particular problem and that might be a real life problem particularly in primary school um That you know the attempts attempting to engage the students in right this is why we're going to learn this maths so that we can solve this kind of problem. It might not be an engaging problem. It might just be here's a maths problem. Have a go at that. Let's try and solve that. But they do. um, They are exposed to problems that they haven't been already taught how to solve. So they they will have the knowledge necessary for solving that problem, but they won't have been told the actual steps of how you get from A to B. So I think it might be a um a confidence thing in terms of right we will be used to answering questions or we haven't been told the steps yes um it yeah. might be a case of just japanese students are particularly conscientious they might just keep trying for longer um <laughs> than than in some other countries
0: yeah that's it, fa- fascinating that and it and it it links in as well, Lucy, with this that I was I was thinking when I was reading the book about about differentiation, because I'm right in saying firstly that in Japan, it's, it's mostly mixed attainment or mixed ability classes. Would yes. that be right? And, up, and yes, again, that, that was that was a trend across many of the, the jurisdictions. And we'll dig into that um, in, in mm. a, a little later. But when you've got a lesson like that, that they're, that they're starting, the teacher's starting with this unfamiliar problem and you've got a wide range of um, abilities or, or attainment levels within the class, Mm. was was there any differentiation that that you saw Um, and if not did did that strike you as being problematic or, or did the teachers have have good ways of dealing with it
1: um yeah i think it works in the japanese context um and and some of what they do i think could apply elsewhere so one one of the ways they make that work is children work in mixed ability groups um and a lot sorry i should have said before a lot that problem solving is often in groups right um so it'll be right you've got five minutes in your groups here's a problem go um so it's not is not kind of extended project work or group work that goes on for for very long but it is a short shot right in this group solve this problem yes um so that's that's partly helpful in the sense that you've then got children of different different attainment levels talking to each other about maths and how they might solve it and helping each other to do it um when they're doing their individual work which they do a fair amount of as well lots of practice the teacher works with individual students so it's not different they don't have differentiation in the sense that they've got different worksheets that they're doing but the textbooks again textbooks and student workbooks are designed so that i suppose like all textbooks you know it starts with easy questions and it gets onto harder questions so in you know by its very nature that's differentiated in the sense that some students are going to be getting onto those hard questions some of them are not and the teacher can go around and support individual students i mean obviously none of this is very exciting this is just what teachers have been doing for decades (laughs)
0: decades <laughs> no but it, but it seemed, it seemed um, i think again i think it is um exciting lucy because the, the the mistake i've been making for years with differentiation and it's it's only hit me the, these last couple of years is that it's just been I've, I've gone to lessons armed with five or six different worksheets and he's mm. on worksheet one she's on worksheet two and so on and it's been an absolute nightmare like my job in lesson has just been like sort yeah. of handing out flyers on the street just dishing these <laughs> dishing these worksheets out but uh, mm. so the the sense i was getting firstly from japan but, uh, but also also from from some of the other other nations and regions you visited was that kids are all starting on the same problem or the same sets of questions and differentiation is more in terms of the time it takes kids to get through those questions would that be fair
1: so yes and the amount of support they get right that's the, the main source of differentiation is by support rather than by activity so um so that will be in in lessons as i mentioned but then also outside of lessons and it looks slightly differently in different countries but it's always by teachers as opposed to teaching assistants um i have nothing against teaching assistants i've worked with some brilliant ones um, in the past but i think it's notable that they've got qualified teachers and actually in finland qualified teachers with additional degrees and special needs working with those students who are having the most difficulty um I think perhaps, obviously, that's quite an effective strategy. But the way that works in um, East Asia, um, including Japan, is that there's space in the day for teachers to work with students one on one if they need it. So in all of those systems, they will have a 10 or 15 minute break in between every lesson. So what that means is you might, the teacher might you know, spend a bit of a five extra minutes at the end of the lesson with a certain student. Often the students will actually come up and like re, almost like refer themselves and say, ah, I, nice. I didn't want to say it in the lesson, but I didn't. Can you show me? I didn't get this bit. Um, so that helps. There's after-school catch-ups. And then you know, there's also a culture of, of private tuition. So if after all that, they're still struggling, um, well, there's a step before that, actually. Because they've got workbooks and textbooks, The parents have a pretty good idea about what the students are doing at school and where they're at. So the parents are more empowered, I suppose, also more willing, but more empowered to support the students if they're stuck at home. And then there's also private tuition. So I I would not go as far as to say, and I certainly don't believe that private tuition is the reason that these East Asian countries do well. um, But it is a a backstop. If after all of that, they're still struggling, then there's this additional that's what parent does the parents to kind of take that responsibility upon themselves
0: i'll tell you what you've you've said something there lucy that that now you've said it sounds obvious but i i've I've completely missed this i've not picked up on this the the, another advantage to having textbooks there is the fact that parents can track where the kids are up to it and i Mm. so they can get more involved and also like we like kids have tuition uh, over here in the UK, but often a child will go to a tutor and and the the tutor will say, right, what you're struggling with. And the child will say oh, algebra. And that's no good to anybody because you spend in a good hour or two hours trying to dig around, find, find out where the kid's going wrong. But if everyone's following this same textbook and the child can say, well, you know, last week I was looking at this exercise and this is where I struggled.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then the then the, tu- the tutor, the parent, whoever has a real good sense of what came before that, what's coming next to it. It's a, and, and therefore can, can direct the help more effectively. Whereas what you mm. tend to get in the UK when everyone's doing a load of different things, a lot of the time you're trying to give support is you're playing detective work, putting yeah. a lot of time in trying to figure out where they're at, where they've come from, what specific areas they're struggling yeah. with. Hmm.
1: and for the student as well most importantly yes. it means the students can actually take control of their own learning because they know what came before yes. they can see what's coming next they can think oh gosh I, I can't remember how to do that let me look back in my workbook or my textbook for where that was explained yes um, they have a sense of progression because they can see that what they're doing now is building on what they were doing last term Yes um, right. and that's part i mean partly what it's not it's not obviously the only reason why, but partly why you do have a bit more of a study culture in East Asia is that that is possible in a way that if a student in England wanted to do that, it would be really hard for them. they would be playing detective work they you know' they've got a bunch of worksheets that uh, are stuck all over the place, yes, um that don't necessarily even i mean maybe that doesn't in math, but you know in science, what I struggled with was different worksheets from different places and different books and different schemes use different language or have a different number of forces yes you know? some people say there are seven forces Another other books says there are five forces some of them call different words so there's no consistency and that leads to confusion
0: that's interesting that and i think that's i don't know if there's going to be a return to textbooks but personally i hope there is but certainly what you have seen in maths in the uk is you're getting a lot of these Online all-in-one systems like Hegarty Maths and My Maths, which kind of have that advantage that outside of lessons, a child can follow mm-hmm. a coherent structure through. But there's mm-hmm. still that disconnect between what's happening in lessons and then what's happening out of. So yeah, I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna need to reflect on this more, Lucy. But I think you, you, you're selling <laughs> me on you're selling me on textbooks, right? Okay, let's take a trip. Let's take a trip to Singapore then. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm gonna ban you here for, from answering all three to these. Okay, so the, my, my question is gonna be. Uh, what accounts for Singapore's high, high PISA rankings? Is it the value that the culture places on education, the extra tuition kids get, or the quality of teaching? I'm sensing it's all three, but is, is the one that's the most significant out of those?
1: Hmm. I mean, I think one and two are very closely tied up. Yes. Um, you know, they get extra tuition because partly because the, the the value culture based on education, but also because of the assessment system. There's very high stakes.
0: Yes. And can, can you just explain ah, that? Well, the, these, the, the high stakes, Lucy, well, mm. when does that kick in, that test?
1: It kicks in quite young in Singapore. It's uh, age 12. So yeah. so unlike the other five systems I went to, um, Singapore do stream um or rather track students into different schools based on a test at age 12. So like the 11 plus, um, it's called the PSLE, the Primary School Leaving Exam. And it's a very, very big deal because it's, it's national. All students take it. And it doesn't only determine what school you go to, but it actually determines what assessments you take. So if you go to a certain type of school, you won't even take O-levels, for example. So it really does affect your future chances. Um, and that means that par- you know parents know that. And even the parents who don't want to engage in, in you know private tuition or getting their kids to do extra homework... Feel that they have to, because everyone else is, and a, yes. it becomes a bit of a rat race. And um, it's the same in in, in Shanghai.
0: See, what, what's interesting about this is, and, and I think there's a danger sometimes, and we're, we're going to touch upon this in the conclusion, there's a danger that you, you can read experiences from some of these countries and think, well, it's fine because um, there's, a, there's a good culture there for education, the kids are doing all this extra work out of lessons, so that accounts for their high results. But particularly in Singapore, you, you make a really big point about the quality of teaching and the increased mm. level of teacher training and so on. Mm. And did you get the sense that that was an absolutely key factor in, in, in Singapore's results?
1: Yes, yes, I do. I don't think Singapore's results would be as high if they didn't have this um, the kind of this value on, on education from, from the parents. But I do still think it would be high. I mean, yes. you, you know, Singapore—they're so far above everyone else in terms of visa scores that they could drop some way down and still be at the top. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the and the teaching, just you know, just anecdotally, just in terms of what I saw, it's very high quality. Um, obviously, there's you know, like anywhere, there are better teachers and worse teachers. But the amount of thought that goes into planning means that the lessons are just well really well really well structured um, pretty engaging, pretty interactive um, yeah <laughs> and, and if
0: you were if you cause I'm interested in this because obviously you you've you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of lessons and again in, in lots of different places. And and it, it really struck me that you, you said that these are some of the best lessons you've seen. What, can, mm. can you pinpoint what 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 kind of makes, especially particularly as perhaps as as a, a non math specialist, if you sit in a math lesson in Singapore and you you yourself mm. can tell that actually this is quality what's going on here. Mm. What what does that quality look like, Lucy? Is it in the questions they ask? Is it the explanations? The pace of the lesson? What's making it so good?
1: Mm. Well, I you know I can't say I what a, a good lesson is, but. But I think I believe that what seems to be very effective and what they're doing in Singapore is probably mainly if I had to pick one th- one of those things, mainly to do with the questioning right. um, and not giving the answer straight away. So it's not um, it's not a case of I ask you a question, you give parrot back an answer. I tell you if it's right or wrong. Um, it's it's asking students questions that require them to think quite deeply about mathematics and um, and a number of different ways of, of reaching the same answer, for example. So, what are the different methods we could use to get here? Um, Thinking and, and then engaging with other people's ideas about how they've got there and where there are mistakes. Getting students to really think through why they made that mistake and build off build off what each other are saying, rather than you... giving them the answer
0: and did you get a sense Lucy of where these questions came from were these from the textbook as well or were these kind of uh, planned individually by teachers or in joint Mm. planning because I get a sense that that actual starting question seems to be crucial right because it's got Mm. to it's got to engage different levels of thought it's got to allow kids to try and come about solving it in different ways so you can have Mm. this discussion whereas you can be the best teacher in the world but if you ask a crap question at the start and it just closes down thought it's all over so yeah did you get sense exactly. where, where these questions came from
1: um uh, three three places um one is they have well-designed textbooks so some some of them will be in there yeah one is that they also have um teacher guides which will include things like um you know key questions to really get students thinking or hinge questions you can ask to check whether or not students have got it suggested activities that are going to be engaging for students in this lesson um so that i think would be a huge help as a teacher particularly if you're a new teacher yes um and then thirdly, it's collaborative planning. So in they will have a period every week, and this is the same in um, in Finland, in Japan, in Shanghai, they'll have a period every week where they all the math teachers that teach, you know, lower secondary math, for example, will meet and plan together and say, Right, what are we doing with your nine next week? What do we have in terms of resources? What do we know already about the best way to teach this topic? What what else do we need? And then okay, well, can you go and make that and I'll make this? So it's talking about is in the same way that I think the good maths lesson involves some talking about your mathematical process yes I think a good good teaching partly involves talking about your teaching and, and your planning um with colleagues yes um and, and, and it splits the workload as well
0: can I just ask on that, Lucy, as well? Because I'm thinking you, you'll have teachers listen to this and I, I, I'll be the same, thinking to myself, right, that sounds brilliant, but when do we have time over here to, for teachers to get together and so mm. on? And um, mm. if, if if we've got teachers listening who can get together as a department for half an hour a week or even an hour a week or something like that, is there anything that you've seen in Singapore or in in some of these regions about how teachers actually work together effectively that even though we have less time over here to to spend collaboratively planning we could actually Mm -hmm. make the most of that time by adopting some of these these more effective practices if that makes sense
1: nothing specific to be honest I mean it was just as I said really in terms of right what what do we have what do we know what do we need Um, yeah yeah. So
0: it's it's looking yeah and but I th- I think if you 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 still hit the nail on the head um, there. There's a definite structure to that planning. Whereas what what I tend to see in in a lot of math department meetings that I've I've had a chance to visit and even some of the ones I've ran myself, it's kind of a teacher standing up saying, "Oh, he's a good resource I use," and then another teacher, "He's a good resource I used, and so on. But having mm. a more structured approach to that planning, what have we got coming up next? Thinking about the misconceptions yeah. and so on.
1: Because it's not it is not a general maths meeting. It yes. is specifically planning for next week's lesson. So that gives yes. us a focus because you know that you know we're all doing this topic, so that immediately focuses you in.
0: Yeah, and I think, you, again, you've hit the nail on the head as well there because how many of the maths meetings that, that teachers have who listen to this are actually planning-focused or how many of them is mm. planning just a kind of add-on after all the admin and all that other crap's mm, been, been mm, sorted mm. out. So, yeah, that's, no, that's interesting. That is interesting. So
1: perhaps one difference, and this isn't going to help teachers much, it's <laughs> okay. not teachers that are going to be creating this problem, but if any teachers are listening, uh, <laughs> what they spend less time doing is is recording and analyzing data um ah. therefore they have more time for the planning so they might use data in their planning and if they've you know if they've recently done a, a mock test and then they can see where the students have, have fallen down and therefore what they need to do to inform their teaching but the point of that is very much it's formative it's to inform their planning rather than tracking um is the student on on track to meet their target grade every two I weeks
0: see. i see mean, and just just while just whilst we're on this just just generally lucy um homework did did you did you get a sense of any uh, trend in terms of homework both from what homework looked like and this can be from from any of the jurisdictions you visited but also um, kind of teacher workload in terms of marking homework were were teachers spending every Mm. Sunday doing the marking and then banging all in a spreadsheet and then having all this mad time triple marking purple pen blah 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 blah, (laughs) blah. did did you get a sense of any of that
1: (laughs) Um, I, I, don't, I couldn't tell you much about the different types of homework. I didn't look into that in particular. In terms of marking, homework and marking in general, um, there was much more of an emphasis on feedback happening verbally to the whole class at the beginning of the next lesson. Yes. So, you know, as I mentioned, when Emma was, Emma was describing the lesson, it started with we'd go through the homework and any problems people had. So you're not having to write, here's how you do it, on their, on their homework because you're telling them, or even better, one of their peers is telling them who yes. got that one right um and it's the same you know i was in, in in shanghai one of the lessons i was supposed to go into the teacher came up to me and said oh no, no no you don't want to come into this one it'll be really boring we're just going through the homework and i was thinking well that's that's probably why you're doing so well in maths <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, you're yeah. spending
1: the first half you know half an hour doing let's go through all of the misconceptions that you have and making sure that you understand it properly
0: yes that's so, good yeah, so i that's, like
1: that so that's a less less marking from that perspective but also that there, there isn't the same um kind of audit trail there's you know they have accountability systems but they're not as concerned seemingly with evidence of yes. stuff um and that's fine that's partly because it's not as high stakes for
0: yes the schools. Got it. No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, right. Let's take a trip to China because this blew my mind. This I, I thought it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so first, I want to talk about growth mindset because mm. this is something that crops up again and again um, on this on this podcast and also just uh, teachers love talking about it. Uh, we had he- Helen Hindle um, on this show who runs the mixed attainment maths conference and she's very much um, in favour of developing a growth mindset in her students. Mm. And and you pointed out that Chinese students appear to have this growth mindset. So I wonder, did you get a sense of how it had been developed? And crucially, um, if we've got a teacher in the UK listening to this, who thinks, right, I want my kids to have this growth mindset, mm. any kind of practical takeaways about how it can be developed from the Chinese approach?
1: So so I, th- I suppose I'm hesitant now to call it growth mindset in that I know the, there's been a recent research or recent meta-analyses on, on the work on growth mindset suggesting it doesn't seem to be having that much yes. of an effect on attainment which i think is really interesting and i want to look into further um but what what was, i saw was seeing in in east asia was i think looked very similar to a growth mindset but i suppose is is perhaps bigger than that in terms of just this belief in effort so you can call that growth mindset if you like or not but a belief that effort can lead to success um and that that's pretty well established in terms of various different cross-cultural studies um on beliefs beliefs about the nature of success the nature of intelligence um but I think partly I mean partly it's school policy so I think you know the fact that in China you've got um, mixed attainment classes for example um, I think setting probably doesn't help in terms of giving students the idea that they can um, improve their their level of, of, of ability in particular yes. subject although I'm sure I'm sure that can work I'm not saying that the two, the two are completely different um, opposed um but i think that helps i mean it it is cultural but i do think that schools are really powerful places in terms of creating cultures so let's a couple of ways that they do that um it's with, with with really young children just through through stories um through stories and through talking about virtues and morals you know when we have moral education with children not necessarily like a whole lesson by itself but just when children are in nursery and in primary school we're talking about what in informed period like what a good child does etc etc in england what we often mean is it's being generous it's telling the truth it's helping other people Mm. um in china as part of that it's it's working hard it's trying to like self-perfect it's it's overcoming challenges it's actually tied up in a concept of what it means to be a good kid um ah, right. as opposed as opposed to the more instrumental just do this because you'll get good job in the future it's actually this is a, a valuable thing as an individual it's a valuable quality to work hard so they tell kids stories in terms of um do you want to try I tell you a story <laughs> oh yeah definitely um, of quang quang heng who's a, an ancient chinese scholar um who was very famous wrote amazing poetry um and was very poor and so when he was growing up he didn't have any um they didn't have any money for the for the gas for the lamps or sorry the oil i'm in the wrong century (laughs) um (laughs) so he thought was a bit of a wasted study opportunity because it's dark and i'm not able to study so he made a small hole in the wall of his house so where it met the um, the house of his richer neighbor, a letter chink of light through from his neighbor's house so that he could study <laughs> by the chink of light. So, you know, that kind of thing is like, wow. And look how far he got because he really overcame the difficulties that he was having.
0: And that's yes.
1: that's why he is such a renowned poet as opposed to because he's just naturally brilliant.
0: I see. And kid, kids are getting these stories from an early age, and yes. they're the kind of things that resonate with them and stay in their yes. mind when they go into secondary. And that's when, and combine that with the fact it's a mixed attainment setting as well. So they're, they're always kind of being challenged that, that that's all these things come together, you think, to create this growth mindset.
1: I think those two, and a third thing is, is how, well, no, two more things. One is how they use praise. So, I mean, this is, this is classic Carol Dweck, but, you know, they are not praising children so much for their attainment um in fact parents in china try and avoid doing that because they don't want the children to get complacent i mean massive generalization there um <laughs> but um the praise is for effort much more so it'll be the child who's worked the hardest who stands up and gets a clap from one yes. of stars. so there's there's that element and then also there's because they've got a kind of mas- more of a mastery type curriculum they're actually seeing growth happening because the class doesn't move on before they've got it, they actually see themselves not getting it and then working hard on it and then getting it. So they can Ah. actually see that growth happening in their uh, mathematical understanding.
0: That's fascinating.
1: And because the teacher's not setting them different targets, the teacher's not saying, well, you're going to work towards a level five and you're going to work towards a level three. All of them are aiming for the national curriculum expectations and they're all going to get there. So the teacher's going to give extra support to those I mean you know I'm, this is all sounding very idealistic obviously not all of them actually do manage to reach those standards but yes. the expectation is that they will and that they will work towards that and that the teachers will support them to get there and that, that they will just take the time that it needs until they they are able to understand Got and that that's actually I think why this is a surprising fact that in some studies Chinese children appear to have greater intrinsic motivation um, when it comes to schoolwork than American children um, yes, because they're enjoying the maths because they've put the work in and they're understanding it and it therefore becomes enjoyable.
0: Got it. That is that is fascinating, that. Um, and just one more question on, on China, Lucy. This was one of my favourite bits in the book. I've, I've told this to about 20 people. I thought it's absolutely brilliant, <laughs> this. Um, and you make the case that um, Chinese students have real deep conceptual understanding, but actually that conceptual understanding is built on a foundation of drills and extensive practice, But the interesting thing for me was that the kids don't actually perceive that to be the case. They they don't see the importance of these drills and extensive practice. And you use a a really nice tennis analogy to explain that. I wonder, can you just share that um, analogy Mm. with us? And we'll just dig into Mm. that a bit more, please.
1: Sure, sure. So if you don't mind, I'll just just kind of correct that slightly. They do see the importance of the practice, or at least the, the, the Chinese students I was speaking to who are now much older, of the practice that they were doing when they are younger, but I think the key point is that they are no longer um, having to memorise steps to solve math right. problems or do lots of practice because they have the mathematical fluency because they did all that stuff when they were younger. Got it. So, so actually, there's, there's some some seemingly counterintuitive findings if you look at um, piece of data about teaching practices or, or rather learning strategies. Um, and English students are way up there in terms of memorization. And 15-year-olds are saying that they do way more memorization um, in terms of le- preparing for a math tests than Chinese students do who seem to just be making connections with other subjects and applying it to real-life problems. So the opposite way around from what you would expect. Um, and in, indeed, like one of the Chinese students I was speaking to who then moved to Canada was complaining that in her high school math classes, she had to follow all the steps rather than just being able to do it her own way or just see the answer. So right. all of this is sounds like... Well, you know the Chinese aren't doing any memorization and they're not doing any practice and it's all just fairly free flow. Yes. Um, which is not at all what you would normally expect. But when this isn't my analogy, I cannot take credit. I was speaking to this um, chap called Rony, who is um, who was is Chinese, was educated in China and then moved to to Canada to um, tutor. Um, he's tutoring people who are applying for university and therefore have to pass the maths test to do that um and he was saying was well, it's, it's likely if you're playing tennis you know when Roger Federer is fir- was first learning to play tennis he didn't learn to play by just playing he learned by first of all he threw the ball just in terms of that serve he just threw the ball up in the air hundreds of times and practiced just getting it just right he practiced swinging the bat just you know just the, hundreds of times just to get the practice Johnny Wilkinson similarly how many times do you think he practiced kicking yeah um, <laughs> and and because of all that now when when roger federer serves he doesn't think right throw it up just this much and bring my arm back just as much because he's that's all just become so natural to him because he's practiced it so many times before
0: yes and it's it's fascinating it's because this is is <clears throat> a recurring theme um again on this show and and in my reading that and again, I don't know your take on this, Lucy. We could get into dodgy grounding because P- people have a go at me when I start saying this. But I'll just <laughs> chuck it in the mix. Chuck it in the mix anyway. That um, I'm not convinced kids learn the kind of basic skills through open-ended problem solving unless they've got these these basics in place. And I, I, the, the mm. mistake I, t- I used to make was I would give my kids these what I consider to be interesting problems. And, and the logic being will learn the ability to solve problems and will learn all the basic skills mm. that are required to solve the problem at the same time. But when you start mm. reading about cognitive load theory and, and the limits of working memory, you, you, uh, for me anyway, you start to realize that unless these basic skills are in place, unless they've been automated, so and um, like you, t- you talk about Federer and, and Johnny Wilkinson, unless they can do the basics without thinking, then mm. they've no chance to be able to put together strategies to win a game in the sense of tennis but but then strategies Mm -hmm. to solve a problem and think deeper and try different approaches because so much of their working memory is taken up on trying to remember how to do the basics so Mm -hmm. I I just thought this was absolutely fascinating the fact that you almost reach a stage where you don't realize how important all that extensive practice has been because almost by definition you're not thinking about it because it's it's Mm -hmm. it's all just been automated Mm -hmm. if that makes sense
1: and it just looks natural but it is yes
0: yeah (laughs) flipping heck yeah Yeah. no i I absolutely love that right well let's take a trip to our final place before before we do some generalities and that's Canada. now again this this blew me away this because I, i think you make the point that one of the key reasons you wanted to visit canada is kind of culturally it's it's the most similar to to the UK in to, uh, compared to the other countries, and yet they seem to regularly outperform us when it when it comes to PISA. And one of the one of the first points that struck me was the use of age related descriptors. And you argue mm-hmm. that this is far better than target levels and grades that we tend to have in the UK. So can you just tell us a little bit about these age related descriptors, and crucially, why do you think they're an improvement on on what we normally do?
1: Sure. So so I mean, it very much ties into the growth mindset idea that we were just speaking about and actually similarly what they're doing in China in terms of having these levels and supporting students to get there. If you've got age related expectations at the end of the year, then that's right right. If in when you are 8 years old, you are going you ought to be able to do x y and z. That means it's very clear to to teachers to to parents if students are are struggling or, or falling behind so that they are able to support them and give them that extra support that they need to reach them um it's it's not like if they don't reach them they're told that they are terrible it's a sense of just you're not yet you're not yet there but that's okay and we'll keep supporting you to to get there
0: and they, they don't get a, they, they won't get held back a year or anything like that would they no
1: no you wouldn't you wouldn't Got get it. held back a year you just get extra help possibly pulled out of some temporarily some for some classes for some additional input um again by a qualified teacher um so what that means then is that you're not accepting anyone gradually falling further and further behind um in the sense that if you've if you've got someone you know who's come into secondary school and they've come in on a level three what we do in England is we we automatically, before they've even set foot in the school, set lower expectations for them.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Um, and that's why they don't necessarily do very well. You know, that's why we've got more children not reaching those those basic, the level two that I spoke about earlier, that the OECD says is essential, um, because we don't expect them to get there. You know, we stick it on the front of their books. We yeah. say that they're not going to get there.
0: It really struck um, me when it went, it struck me when when I read that, and I thought, yeah, because we have again, I, I've I've stopped this, but we had a thing a couple of years ago where the first lesson with our year 11s, it'd be right, right your GCSE target on mm. on the front of your book, and the, mm. the poor kid who's got like a grade D target, well, what's the point exactly? In even, what what exactly. is the point in even turning up? But it made me wonder: are these um, age related expectations made explicit to the kids? Like, well, would a child know what their Expected to be able to do at age thirteen or fourteen, or is it just something for the teachers?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I suspect that it it is differs between different schools. There's much more variability within Canada than there is within other countries, particularly because it's actually ed- education organised by province. Right. Um, but there is a lot of similarity, but there is there are differences between schools. um But there are, you know, as part of these standards, what's quite helpful is that they're also exemplars so you know this is what it looks like if in english you're able to do this this, and this rather than just as a descriptor which often you know doesn't really mean anything if you say you know thoroughly understand this versus tentatively (laughs) understand this It, it doesn't make any doesn't make any sense does it whereas if you've got exemplars into this is what it looks like then children can see if teachers choose to use it i think it's up to the teachers but they they can show them right this is what you're aiming for this is what it looks like
0: I see. So I just wondered whether there was that expectation that we we tend to have in the UK, and this this does my head in, this Lucy. Wherever you're supposed to, you say to a child. Right, what what level are you working at? Oh, I'm working at level five. Right, what what do you need to do to be able to get to a level six? Oh, I need to be, be able to do this and this, this. And like I have no idea what a child needs to be able to do to to get to level five. It's it, it for me it strikes it strikes as 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 meaningless. But would a child would there be that emphasis on almost that kind of metacognition and that knowledge of where they are in the learning process and what they need to do to get to the next stage? Well, would that be something that was emphasised um, either in Canada? Or or or, Um, or anywhere else
1: i think less less so in terms of seeing it as a linear progression through mathematics from level two to level six um because well in mathematics and in any other subject it's not linear is it there are there are actually different factors within the subject certainly in science used to drive me crazy and when you know a student might be on a level four in one topic and yep. then they've gone a level three in the next topic. It looks <laughs> right. like they've gone down, but actually yeah, no, they've yeah. learnt a whole lot of other stuff, which means they're now <laughs> level three in you know, literally it was biology and physics. You know, completely different subjects. Um, yeah. But 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 yes, to I mean, in terms of good in terms of good teaching, and there was there is variety obviously within these countries. But in terms of knowing what they need to do to improve their work, yes, um, but that'll be for this specific piece of work, or maybe this for this specific skill, as opposed to. In maths or in
0: science, got it, got it, and then just before we leave Canada just to do some generalities i 'm going to have to drag you into this problem solving debate lucy because i 'm ju- just re- I was mm. trying to keep trying to keep you out of it, but I just just uh, just struck me now that you make a big thing about this in Canada that with uh, specific regard to maths that a, a lot of it is taught through through problem solving and, and you make the point that it's potentially problematic and um, mm. I wonder can you just dig, dig a bit deeper into that what what how do they try and teach maths through problem solving or what do lessons look like and and why do you get the sense that that might be a bit of an issue
1: mm. so so first of all i don't think it, it's not necessarily like in everywhere across canada I mean as sure. I said there's a lot of variability within Canada and within individual classrooms even within individual classrooms within the same school you'll get teachers with different approaches so that's just something to say to begin with the 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 place that that this is coming from the problem-based learning is from curricula um particularly in the western provinces so there was a new curricula that was suggesting that children should be learning all of their maths through solving problems and it didn't count if you told them how to solve the problem because (laughs) they weren't learning it through the problem so very much the idea that you are solving sorry learning mathematics through solving problems in in a way you're kind of teaching yourself with guidance from the teacher yes um and in that case there was a study done on um was quebec um who'd introduced um such a such a curricula um and the authors of the study found that the results went down for, for all students and they went down the most for the weaker students so that was that's why i'm saying it's a bit problematic it's just that based based on the evidence that exists it doesn't seem that it's very effective at teaching maths well well, what the research that exists does seem to suggest is that solving problems using maths is useful in terms of children solving uh, problem solving abilities in maths um but for me it's therefore it's a matter of chronology it's not a a case of either do direct instruction or do problem-based learning but rather do do direct instruction and teach them the maths, and then let them solve problems and apply that learning, and, and you know develop other creative faculties, etc. Once they've understood the maths and they're using it, yeah. And, I... and the 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 balance of, of how much direct instruction and actually kind of content and knowledge you do versus how much application of knowledge and, and you know kind of pursuing those other types of skills is is a values based question. It's not a scientific one.
0: Yes no that, that makes perfect sense and just just last question before i just move into some some generalities just on that lucifer and just just push you just a little bit more on this the because a listener could be listening to this show and thinking well wait a minute here so in in canada they're doing problem-based learning but you've just described how um in chat in japan for example they would start a lesson with a problem for, for students mm. to discover mm. What well, what's the difference there how, how are the canadians and i know it's not mm-hmm. the whole of canada how how are the canadians doing this problem-based learning and japan doing it differently and japan seemingly more and more effective
1: yeah so so i, I again i'm not for, for a second suggesting that all canada are doing sure, of this less useful <laughs> type of learning sure sure um but but i can you know kind of if i, if I was to, to take a kind of caricature of a particular type of curriculum which exists yeah um Versus the Japanese one. The difference is in the duration of the problem solving, partly, and in the prior knowledge that students have before they undertake it. So in Japan, it's it's, as I said, kind of short and sharp. You might have five minutes. Here's a problem. Discuss it. What do you think? Um, And the teacher has chosen that problem because it's a problem which uses knowledge that they have already been taught, either in that lesson or in a prior lesson. Yes. Um, Whereas what this particular curriculum I was looking at was saying is that if you teach them how to solve the problem or if you teach them, you know, if you teach them (laughs) as opposed to them discovering it for themselves, then that that doesn't count as problem based learning. And this is supposed to be a problem based learning type curriculum. So I'm sure there are other problem based learning type curriculums which are better than that. But that's a kind of an extreme example of you're just supposed to let them discover everything for themselves. Um, and they may or may not have the knowledge in in order to do that
0: got it no that makes perfect sense thanks for that lucy um mm. just a, a couple of kind of generalities here one thing that struck me from reading the book was um technology the the use of technology mm. in lessons and in particularly math lessons it wasn't something that, that you particularly emphasised. so i wonder did you observe any good practices or, or are these higher performing countries kind of less technologically dependent than the uk
1: I don't really know how technology in my systems works in England, to be honest, so I don't know what... what I'm comparing it to.
0: Okay, well, for for example, so you'd you'd often see interactive whiteboards for a start. So that would be mm-hmm. that will be that will be a basic. But mm-hmm. then you'd also um, often see the use of kind of dynamic geometry packages. So you would, um, when plotting a graph, you might use a, a website called Desmos where you can animate things, and there be a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. you could do things dynamically or GeoGebra, so you could measure angles dynamically and so on. Yeah, and you, I think you'd rarely see a lesson without. Well, no, that, that's not true. You'd certainly see a lot of a lot of interactive whiteboards and you would um, also often see a lot of use of, of websites applets uh, mm-hmm, and so on mm-hmm. so w- w- would that be something that you'd see
1: um so in in primary probably more so but but in primary the, the tech is you know those programs where it just makes it all makes it all fun and you've got chickens running around <laughs> yes, and yeah. you know and you cl- if you click the right answer the frog jumps out of the well you know that kind of thing so not not really anything that that you couldn't do from a mathematical perspective on a blackboard but yes with a with a few kind of bells and whistles so that was happening um in primary schools in particular um i mean finish finish schools as i said the textbooks do come with a lot of like e-resources so um i didn't sit in enough math lessons to kind of give you a a a general picture but i suspect that if that 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 you're talking about in terms of graphs that they that's the kind of thing that they would use so that you know they they use what's available but but it's not in every lesson it's not a kind of consistent this is a technology-based math lesson um i saw lessons without it um east asia um japan in particular is just blackboards they're green yeah and it's all written they're green Ah. yeah um Singapore, a lot of it as secondary is also using blackboards rather than interactive whiteboards because they just find it's more effective in terms of showing how to solve a problem
0: see the thing is as well on that Lucy and I suspected that might be the case and I wonder if that almost makes them think more about their questions when crucially listen closer to kids responses because what you often find in the UK is that you'll get a teacher will download a PowerPoint lesson from Tes and the problem with that is it'll, it'll it'll look like a really good lesson but you almost then tied into the questions that are asked on the PowerPoint the way mm. that the solutions presented on the PowerPoint and so on Whereas mm. if you if you're there with a blank canvas essentially and you've got a question to ask and then the kids are firing answers and so on Mm. you've got complete freedom to to to, and it takes it it's a lot more you need a lot more skill to do it but you're then much more adaptive and responsive to to your kids answers as opposed to if you've got a set powerpoint that you've downloaded you're going to bang it on the interactive whiteboard and you're going to do it no matter what yeah i I, I think i think that might be a a factor if that makes sense Mm,
1: mm, yeah it makes complete sense yeah i know and i didn't see i didn't see the kind of powerpoint approach anywhere in terms of math lessons
0: that's interesting
1: i'm not saying it didn't happen this is no, just of course, what, what of i have course. seen um one just one one other thing i did see yes. in some canadian classrooms primary um them doing their own kind of exercises on on laptops practicing various mathematical
0: oh, functions okay Right. Okay. So there is there is some use of technology, but yeah, certainly in the kind of East Asian thing. In terms of lessons itself, with teachers running it, it will be perhaps less prevalent than you might see in the UK. Yes. Yes. Got it. Fantastic. Okay. Well, a couple of conclusions now, uh, Lucy. What really struck me. I I love the ending of your book as well. You describe five principles that the five high-performing regions adopt. I wonder if you just pick one of those that you think possibly would have the biggest positive difference in the UK. And crucially, is it doable?
1: Hmm. Well, we've actually we've, we've talked quite a bit about one of the things which I think would really help, um, which is doable, which is well-designed textbooks and yes. schemes of work, which are shared centrally. Um. So not man- mandatory at all. I think that would be it would be terrible <laughs> if it was mandatory. But but having
0: can i just ask on that how come lucy why why wouldn't you go the full hog on this If, if you've seen really effective textbooks and schemes of work would you not be tempted to say right every teacher's got to use these
1: i would be tempted to say here are three different types of textbooks choose which one suits you best i wouldn't ever want to say here's just one textbook and you have to use it because partly because i think teachers would hate it um I do think it's. I do think perhaps um, moving towards being more of a profession, we do need to have actually less autonomy in terms of the materials that we use, but not to the degree where it is just a case of this is what you're doing, off you go. Um, because even in these countries I, w- I was in, I mean, with the exception of Shanghai, it wasn't a single textbook; it was a, a, a variety and you could choose. And that, you right, know, it's, okay. there are there are different effective ways of doing things, aren't there? Yes. Um, so you could have, you know three different approaches that have got slightly different um different focus foci you know what i was saying just now in terms of the the values based question in terms of the the amount of time that you spend on, on developing different kinds of knowledge and skills i think you know that's it's valid that you might have different not not different schemes of work where one is yes children discover everything for themselves let's do everything through projects because that has been shown to be less effective but some equally effective things where you're just covering different content or two different degree
0: okay okay so one one change straight straight away textbooks available but not not compulsory and again centrally planned and written schemes of Mm -hmm. work but but not compulsory that that'd be that'd be something Um, anything anything else that you you think would be doable in the uk
1: um the treating teachers as professionals um i think we are taking steps forward and steps back in this respect (laughs) okay um i do think it's problematic that we still that you don't have to be a qualified teacher to teach in a in a school in an academy um because that's what does that say about is the the profession it says that it isn't a profession yes Um, because the definition of a profession is a group of people who share a specialized body of knowledge to um to apply that you know for the good of a group of people um and if you would have to be qualified then you don't have access to that specialized body of knowledge yes so that's i think that's problematic um more promisingly i think the the establishment of the chartered college of teachers um is really promising um as if I even mean, if they can kind of become in its early days but a genuine like voice of the profession that is able to have a, a site with all of the available evidence that teachers can come and look at that they can set up this chartered teacher status i think having um a genuine career ladder would be really helpful um we haven't talked about that but you know as they do in they do in shanghai and in singapore um just in terms of teacher leadership having to, having an opportunity for teachers to to be promoted um and to have greater responsibility without having to go into management
0: yes um, just, just on that list, can I just ask you something just related to that? Because mm. um, Mark McCourt, who's been a guest on this show, um, a very, very prominent um, kind of maths educator um, over here in the UK, he makes the argument that one thing he'd like to see is that for the first kind of five or six years of a teacher's career, they're still, tr- they're still kind of classed as a novice in the sense mm. that they have a reduced timetable, they get access to more support, more professional development, more joint planning mm-hmm. and so on as opposed to what happens here, whereas in your NQT, you get a slightly reduced timetable, but then from that second year on, you're essentially just treated the same as a teacher who's mm. been teaching for 20, 30 years. W- would that be something you'd kind of advocate or do, do some do some of the jurisdictions that you visited have something similar to that, where it is it is a continual kind of teacher training development program that, that goes throughout your career. And it's not just the case that 12 months in, you're just left to almost fight for yourself in a certain sense.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but but it's the latter. It, it's sorry. It's it's the continuous throughout your career, not just the first yes. five years. So there isn't. Well, there there is a distinction in Shanghai and in Singapore because they have these career ladders of being a more junior teacher. Um, but you're you still have a full timetable. But everyone gets a lot of development, whatever stage yes. you're at, whether you're a junior teacher or a master teacher, you're still I mean, you might be the one that's mainly leading the development. Um, but there's a lot of time spent on professional development, and and that what that looks like is mainly kind of collaborative. Um, teachers learning from each other rather than here's the latest fad. Everyone learn how to do this, or here's what you now need to do to impress Ofsted.
0: Yes, yeah, and oh, just so, on that. So you, you again, you you've you've said the big word there, Lucy. Just um, Ofsted is. our our kind of schools and school inspections and scrutiny i I got the sense that that simply just wasn't as big an issue um in any of the countries really than than it would be over here would that be fair
1: Mm. um it wasn't as big an issue they still have not everywhere has inspections finland doesn't japan does canada doesn't shanghai does um singapore does but the difference is the stakes attached to the inspection outcome because i don't think that Ofsted in itself is problematic i think it's helpful if, you, if you've got the right people being inspectors i think it's helpful to have you know people coming in and, and having a look and giving you some feedback um i think the, the problem is that 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 there is a grade attached to it that that grade is published um affects head teachers career in particular and can actually lead to them being shut down or fired that's the problem yes. it's not the existence of often it's not the inspection framework it's what then happens as a result of a poor inspection
0: got it got it and then um, j- just another question i was thinking lucy is there anything that the uk does that these nations could could learn from
1: yeah i think i think to be honest lessons in big big generalization coming up but lessons in england are more fun um, oh really we're, we're good oh. at the engagement bit i think um comparatively there's there's more focus on the engagement and i do think as we started off by saying that you know there, are, there's a problem if that's all you're doing. Obviously, yes. you need to also be thinking about the structure of the lesson and how you're explaining things. But it would be great to have both, wouldn't it? I think that's the Gee. that would be the ideal. So, and did
0: you get a sense that's doable?
1: Yes, I don't see any reason why why you can't have why you can't have both. I mean, particularly if you have. I mean, partly it's a time issue, isn't it? Time in terms of teacher planning time. But if you already have like a really good scheme of work, and this this again it comes back to what you were saying about. Um, newer teachers and and maybe having different um expectations of them i don't think that that newer teachers should be expected to to be planning lessons from scratch i think ultimately there should be a shift so that responsibility for lesson design and curriculum planning is is the responsibility of more experienced teachers yes Um, which would give more time because you know if you've already got that um teacher's guide that has key questions to ask his activities you've already got um a, a textbook which has asks the right questions of the right levels of difficulty, then you can spend your time thinking about how can I make this particularly interesting to this particular class. Yes. Um, so my, my kind of motto on this is that you need to be designing the, the, the content or the concepts for mastery, but the context for motivation. And I don't see oh. any reason why you can't do both.
0: Just say that again, Lucy. I like that. Just what, what was that one?
1: <laughs> You need to design the concepts for mastery so when you're thinking about curriculum design concepts yeah. for mastery in terms of the order of them how quickly you go through them etc um context for motivation so I like for it. example you know you, only you know what in particular the kids in your class are interested in and can you take you know take all that really good stuff important importantly structured in a particular way and um, put it into a, a real life example that's relevant to these children
0: got it yeah. and that right okay that's interesting that's interesting because there's, there's a danger isn't there that you 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 read a book like Cleveland's or you, you you're you in some kind of conference on Shanghai teaching and all that and you just come out of it thinking oh the UK's rubbish at everything why do mm. we even bother but that that's interesting that you've picked up on that thing that we do particularly well and that also you believe there's a way to to fuse that in with some of these uh effective practices from elsewhere that's mm. I like that I like that Lucy and um, last couple of questions for from me um. So you've, obviously you've come back you have written a absolutely wonderful book um you've then had an opportunity to to speak to um I, I follow you on Twitter and you to some pretty high profile people and speak at some some big events. So what have been the response from particularly u uh, k uh, people in the u k and um, kind of ha- stakeholders when you've presented mm. them with their findings w- with your findings? sorry
1: mm. generally pretty positive i mean i've had I've had some great opportunities to to do workshops with lots of head teachers. And generally you know that they they're interested it makes them think different slightly differently about different things a lot of them are doing some of these things already so we're really pleased to kind of have those things validated um i think the the only kind of negative reaction i get is is frustration about lack of time yes. because they want to be able to do all the stuff and actually it's just a case of well but, but how can we how can we make yeah. this work our teachers are already overworked um or, or financial frustrations. But I do think an awful lot of this is, well, it's not more expensive in the longer term. There's a, there's a kind of initial activation cost, mm. um, of course, in terms of designing some of this stuff. But um, longer term, there's no reason that, that, is, that these systems are more expensive. Um well- will we ever get
0: will we ever get somewhere lucy with this will we will we ever get more time for for teacher planning and you know less less contact lesson time and all this because it seems to me that that's a game changer right that that Mm. it's gonna it's gonna sort out the workload crisis it's gonna lead to better better relations between teachers and it's gonna lead to better lessons and better learning Mm. Mm. did you get the sense we'll ever get there
1: but i think it's partly financial isn't it and at the moment that's not. That's obviously yeah. not something that her teachers are able to even contemplate. Yes. There is, if you if you were to be in a situation as we were maybe five years ago, where you know we weren't rolling in it, but there was enough money that we've got yep. the normal amount of uh, of children in the class and f- for for England, um, and the normal amount of of PPA. Um, yes. What you can do in that situation is increase your class size to increase the amount of time teachers have off. Yes. Um, and that that is the approach in in East Asia. It's not that. It's not that they have more teachers that give them all this PPA time. It's that they have bigger classes. Um, And that works if you are taking a whole class interactive approach. Yes. Because if you're trying to do lots of different students on individualized pathways or doing project-based learning, then it really matters if you've got, you know, one teacher and 35 students because you can't get around all of them and they're not going to have the input. if you're doing a, a lot of that class, kind of whole class interactive work, then actually all of those students are kind of getting access to you, obviously not individually, but for 20 minutes, let's say. And then you're able to go around to do individual support. And then you've got additional time outside of lessons where you can also be offering that individual support. Yes. So that makes it easier to to have slightly bigger classes combined with the lack of the need for extensive written feedback on books.
0: Of course. Yeah, no, that, yeah. Frustrated, but that that, made, that makes perfect sense. And mm-hmm. um, ju- just last one on this before we move on to a couple of final reflections. When I was, uh, when I told people I was um, going to be interviewing you, and I always say this to people, what question would you, you like me to ask Lucy? And it was, it was fascinating this because a, a decent number of people said to me, Well, it doesn't matter. We can't learn anything from from these other jurisdictions because it's all about culture. The culture is completely different over there than it is is in the UK. What do you say to people, Lucy, when when you hear that? Because that's almost kind of puts the barriers up, doesn't it? We can't change Mm. the culture, so we can't learn anything from these countries. What's your response to that?
1: My response to that would be that if you go back to the data, um, the OECD do tons of analysis and they look at a number of different factors. Um, that affect student outcomes that correlate with student outcomes, um, and there are a lot of different things which do seem to correlate with student outcomes that are not culture. I mean, you can't measure culture, but t- so the teaching practices used, for example, have a bigger impact on or have ooh, now I'm going to need to fact check myself there. <laughs> a similar, I can't remember if it's just more or just less, but a similar amount of am- impact. Um, on student outcomes as student background does, and as you'll know, student background has a large impact. Yes. So teaching practices, if you're looking within countries, between countries, has a has a huge impact. Um, and it's the, country, the countries which are doing well in PISA are the ones that are using the teaching practices that are having the high impact. So you know yes. there there are, and that's just one example. You know there are a number of other things like teacher teacher professionalism and CPD and, and planning time and all of that. You can't discount that. And that is not because of the culture. That's because of policy, because they've made perhaps, you know, they've made the decision to do this because they value education. But that's something that we could do if we had the will politically um, to do that. So there is a ton there's tons we can we can learn from it.
0: That's a great answer. No, I will be. I'll be reiterating that, Lucy. That's superb. That. Um. Last couple of questions then from me. You, you say in the book that you, you'd like your child to go to school in Canada. Um. I wonder why that would be, and, and what would be your second choice out of the countries that you visited.
1: Mm. So the reason that that I would want my child to go to school in Canada is because of everything else that they do. So, so they do pretty decently in in academics, but they have in across the schools they went to such rich, um. Co-curricular and extracurricular stuff too, so they've got tons of different clubs. You know, all the head teachers were so proud of saying that you know seventy percent of children play in some kind of sports team, and they've got um, the children are going to go down and set the salmon free, and they're going to have to keep chickens, <laughs> and they're going to they've got an anime club. You know, it, it's just su- such a rich school life, um, and there's a lot of focus on relationships with teachers there as well, which I really like. Um, so. From a parental perspective, I don't only want my children to do well in reading math and science. I want them to have that kind of wider experience as well, which I think Canada did do really well in the sense that um well, that's not it's, they they have extracurricular activities in 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 Singapore and in, in Shanghai and Japan and they take them pretty seriously, but they also are under quite a lot of pressure when they get to age 15 16 because to get into high school is a big deal um so i wouldn't want that um and finland finland is 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 good it's i think it'd be a nice place to be i certainly wouldn't mind sending my kids to school there and i think that would probably be my second choice um but there's just not as much going on um the the not as much you know the school isn't the same hub in the way that they seem to be in canada um and they also and i I'm obviously i don't know what um haven't got children yet what kind of um i can't say ability level because that's definitely not growth mindset but, you know i don't know how we <laughs> learning. Um, yes. but, but in finland they're not so great at stretching those who are higher retainers so uh, which i think that... if you're gonna you know if you're either going to stretch your high attainers or support your low retainers you should definitely do the latter from a kind of social justice societal yes. perspective um but if you were a parent of one of the children who was actually getting stuff pretty quickly, it might be a little frustrating. Whereas in Canada, they do both.
0: That's but interesting.
1: There is more variability in Canada. So it's much more of a it's a much more hit and miss. Like you'd be pretty safe in Finland, sending your kids anywhere that is going to be a decent school. In Canada, you could get unlucky. So Got it.
0: Got it. More and not. And and on that, would it be the same answer for where you'd most prefer to teach, Lucy? Would that would that be Canada too? Out no. of all the places you've visited, oh, well, no. go on, where would you go for? <laughs> uh,
1: Finland. Um, and how come a much nicer lifestyle in Finland? So uh, I mean, t- so to start with, you've got some really good training, um, quite a lot of time. You know, you've got you've got five years training in how to be a teacher in the first place. So I, and that appeals to me because I love learning. Um, and then you've got, you know, you've got fifteen minute breaks between lessons in the way that you don't in Canada. Um, t- teachers in Canada kind of their workload feels pretty similar to in England. Um, the, the, you know, there are a number of ways in which the system is is more similar to, to England than Finland's is. So. They still work hard in Finland and they probably kick me for saying that they don't. <laughs> um, but they don't work as hard as everyone else. <laughs> God, I and that's mean, not it's... a bad thing. You know, it's really good because they've just got a better well-being um, yes. because there's a bit more space. There's a bit more space in the day.
0: Got it. Fantastic. And, and last couple of questions from me, Lucy. The first is the big one that I always like to uh, ask near the end of the interview. Uh, what do you wish you knew when you first started teaching that you know now?
1: Oh i to be completely honest i'm not sure that knowing anything that i know now would have helped me back then because of the circumstances that i was teaching when i first started teaching because they because i suppose some of, a lot of the things that i'm learning from these systems are system level things mm. um i would not be in a position I mean, not sure I'd be in a position now to design a curriculum. To be honest, I'm not a, a curriculum expert. But given that, that I was planning every lesson from scratch, I suppose I would have spent less time making powerpoints. <laughs> yes. Because that took up a lot of my time. But on the other hand, the context that I was in, unfortunately, that was required. That was this is how, this is how you're going to pass your teacher training year, or this is what an AUSTEC good lesson looks like. You need you need to have your mild, medium, and spicy worksheets.
0: oh god yeah (laughs) so so actually
1: i think i think it would be worse for me knowing what i know now because i wouldn't have been able to change anything but i would know even more that what was going on there was not right
0: that's good that's a fascinating answer that lucy and um final one from me i just wondered if you give us a bit of a world exclusive here a bit of a sneak (laughs) sneak peek sorry of what 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 you're up to and what you're working on now
1: well, I'm currently speaking to you from a hotel room in Seoul, in Korea, Nice. Um, where I am meeting some teachers to, to talk to Korean teachers about their experiences, because my next um, book is about the teaching profession. So some of the questions that we've been speaking about um, today, but what what can we do? I mean, what can we learn globally about how to, how do we improve the teaching profession in terms of making it more attractive, making it more livable? Um and And making sure the teachers uh, continue to get better um, once once they're in. So Korea is a uh, one of my first stops on this trip. I'm not um, I'm not jet setting around the world. I know it sounds like it. I'm actually, <laughs> uh, I'm actually on honeymoon next week in Japan. Nice. so I thought while I'm, while I'm in this part of the world, I'll just come a few days early and do a few interviews. Um, but Korea is an interesting case study, I think, because te- teachers here self-report that they're very well paid. And that they are well respected, more so than most other countries. And yet, one in five say that they regret becoming a teacher, which is higher than any other country in the TALIS Teaching and Learning Survey. So I want to know why. So it's clearly it's not all about pay and status. Um, so I'm going to find out. Watch this
0: face. Yeah. don't know the answer Oof. yet. No. Well, when you do and the book's out, please come back on the show, Lucy, because that (laughs) sounds absolutely uh, fascinating, Matt. Um, Well, Lucy, thanks. Firstly, thanks so much for for taking the time to to speak to me, especially in in your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. But above all, thank you for writing one of my one of my favourite books of the last few Mm. years of, of any genre. I thought it was it's one of those things that. I think teachers, particularly in the UK, we hear a lot about, certainly in maths anyway, Shanghai and Japan and all that. And and some, some people who are part of the maths hub have been lucky enough to be involved in an exchange programme and so on but what even though i've done a lot of reading about it i found cleverlands just so illuminating the sense that you, you get around the world trip and you're picking out bite sized kind of takeaways and information from all these different countries so it, it was just it was an absolutely wonderful read and I, I can't recommend it highly enough so thank you for writing oh, it and thank, I'm, thank
1: I'm, you very much
0: oh no my pleasure lucy and i can't wait for this uh, this second book as well so mm-hmm. lucy crean thank you so much for ta- taking the time to speak to thank us. thank you
1: today. very much for having me
0: There you have it. There was my interview with Lucy Crean, the author of Cleverlands. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. As ever, when I speak to these wonderful guests who are so kind to give up their time to come on my show, they leave my head absolutely buzzing with thoughts and ideas. And I've got kind of three main takeaways uh, from the book Cleverlands and and the interview that I've just done with Lucy. And The first is with culture. And I I really, really wanted to to ask that question directly to Lucy. How does she respond when people say, but the culture's different? Because you get that all the time. And as as I said to Lucy, when I was preparing for this interview and sourcing questions, that's what people were saying to me. They were saying, no, it's all well and good hearing how well Singapore are doing and China are doing, but the culture's completely Completely different we just don't have that in the UK and I think that's true to a large extent but that doesn't mean there aren't practical things that we can do even in the context of our school but even more specifically in the context of our own classroom to try and tap into a little bit of the benefits of that culture and I return to the concept of growth mindset something that I discussed at length with with Helen Hindle and came up with our conversation with, with Andrew Blair as well And the key for me, the more I read about growth mindset and the more I begin to understand it, And Lucy touched upon this as well. Let's take the phrase growth mindset just to the side for one second because I think there's a lot of negative connotations. And as Lucy said, there's a few studies coming out of late that suggest perhaps the effects aren't quite as strong or replicable um, as Carol Dweck and and other proponents would like. So let's just move growth mindset to the side uh, for a second. And let's just all agree on that the effort, effort is possibly the, the, the key to success or certainly an absolute key driver of success. And that's a message that every single teacher out there can help drive into into their students. And I loved I loved that that, that Lucy told that that story, that kind of Chinese proverb, if you will, about the uh, the man who was working hard by uh, just a, a little pinprick of light coming through from his um, from his neighbor's wall. And I thought that was lovely. And it just made me think: what well, what about the stories? that we tell our students in class. And kids often ask me, oh, who's the best mathematician you've ever taught? Who's the cleverest? Sir, have there ever been kids that have been cleverer than you? And I've always reveled in those stories, saying about students I've taught who could do things, uh, that just absolutely blew my mind. But that's the wrong emphasis, right? Because that starts to talk about ability, and that starts to talk about natural talent. And then, when you've got kids listening to that, thinking, oh, well, I can never get anywhere near that, how on earth is that inspiring? So, I need to put a different spin on my stories. I need to start telling kids stories about kids who put in effort, went above and beyond, and just made incredible progress, just achieved incredible things. And I've got tons of those stories, absolute tons of those stories. But I'm going to make a special effort now to make those in explicit in my lesson. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to start talking about the story of the, the kids who were absolutely... would <laughs> I had a girl, she used to cry at the sight of algebra. You put algebra upon the board and she, she had, had so many bad experiences with algebra. You could see tears would come in her eyes and, and she'd start tensing up a little bit. And by the end of the year, through hard work, through coming to after-school revision classes, through asking me for help, asking me for extra work, conversation with parents and stuff... She was flipping loving algebra by the end of the year, absolutely flying, and because she'd nailed out algebra, so much other stuff fell into play, straight line graphs, all that kind of stuff, and absolutely nailed a GCSE. They're the stories I need to tell, not the one about the kid who could flip in plot a quadratic at age four or something like that. So yeah, so that's one thing. We may not have the same culture in the UK, but we can cultivate that as close to that culture as we can within our own classrooms. So that's the first takeaway. The second is textbooks. Now, again, I remember about how many years ago? Now, probably, I've been teaching 13 years. So probably about three years into my career, the anti-textbook revolution began. When I first started teaching, textbooks were everywhere. You had a set textbook that you were following from your GCSE course. And then it became cool to say textbooks are crap, textbooks are a load of rubbish, it's unimaginative, it's it's the sign of really bad teaching where you just, a teacher does an example and you say, right, turn to page 53 and crack on with it. So then there was a big kind of pressure on for teachers to design their own questions and all this kind of stuff. And now I think, even though the, I think we're starting to realise, certainly I am anyway, that the sequence of questions that you give students is so, so, so important to making connections, developing fluency and understanding and so on. And that some of these textbooks contain some of the best sequences of questions around, sequences of questions that I couldn't write at all if I sat down and had all the kind of of time in the world to do it. Unfortunately, we're we're at a time where we just, schools just don't have the money, the budget to buy textbooks. And also with the new GCSE specification, I'm tempted to say that there aren't the quality of textbooks that there were for the old spec purely because there hasn't been enough time to develop them, change the mistakes, improve them and so on. So what on earth are we supposed to do? Because the problem with not having a textbook is, is that we as teachers are, are forced to kind of make up these questions ourselves or find them from other sources. But there's another issue that that Lucy alluded to and that I picked up on in the interview and that that's that it almost marks a segregation between what goes on in the classroom and what goes on at home. Because we do these questions and examples in class, maybe on worksheets, maybe projecting upon the board and so on. Kids, sure, they're copying them down in in their books and stuff. But it's not as if when the child takes their exercise book home, the parent can look through and see a, a kind of coherent uh, structure or journey if you will because like some kids notes are all over the show there's sheets coming out left right and center and even the neatest child in the world uh, is probably going to go through five or six exercise books um, in the course of a year so it's hard to chart that progress and of course crucially you can see where the child is at this at that moment in time by looking at an exercise book and where they where they've come from possibly but not where they're going to you can't see what the next chapter is or where, where the next part of development is And that that makes it hard for the parent to know where the child is and what they need to do. It makes it hard for the child. It makes it hard for any tutor who's helping or anything like that. And even if, so we have some textbooks in our school, but we're so kind of precious about them because money's so tight. We don't let students take them home. So you're not tapping into this benefit. And of course, you get wonderful things like Hegarty Maths, which which are almost like um, a textbook, better in many respects. But they're used at home. Whereas something different is used in class often. There is this kind of segregation for me. So what on earth are we going to do about it? Well, until we get a load of money in education, it's very, very difficult. But one thing I will say is that is that Corbett Maths, as he always does, comes to the rescue here for me. Um, I've used his worksheets and videos obviously for years, but his online textbook activities are some of the best I have ever seen. Uh, you'll find them on the exact same page if you just go to Corbett Maths and just look at his worksheets and videos. Quite a few of them now have textbook exercises, and they are brilliant because that's where they're tapping into interleaving and there's a uh, really good structure and sequencing of questions. So possibly that's the way. Use them in class and then maybe email them back home or or put them on the school system so parents can access them. Something like that. It's not perfect, but the more I think about it, the more I'm coming around to thinking textbooks are absolutely crucial. They're the the way forward. A blast from the past that needs to come back. And finally, finally, um, planning time. Now, um, you often hear this from these higher performing regions that the reason teachers can deliver better lessons is because they have more time to plan. And that's absolutely true. The contact contact time is far less. They have bigger class sizes, but they have more time to plan and collaboratively plan. And then personally, I take the bigger class sizes um, if I had that extra time. So we can't magically create more time. We don't want to increase teacher workload. So what can we do about this? Well, I've been thinking about this, and again, it's something Lucy said um, in the interview, that when teachers get together, it is purely in that moment in time to plan lessons. Whereas of course, when we get together, certainly in our school as a department, it's a departmental meeting, that we try myself and head of department try to get teaching and learning in there but of course it's it's fighting for teachers attention alongside right what's the latest bit of admin targets book scrutiny feedback learning walk feedback Uh, arrangements for mock exams, all this stuff. And (laughs) um, fans of cognitive load theory will know that we've got limited um, attention in working memory. And once it starts getting filled up with all that kind of rubbish, it's very hard to to get teaching and learning uh, to dedicate enough attention and and thought as is needed to it. So what can we do about this? Well, I don't know how practical this is. I'm going to pitch it to my head of department, but we always meet on a Monday uh, for about an hour for our departmental meeting. Could we split that? Can we do half hour on a Monday or 20 minutes on a Monday that is just admin? Let's just get all that rubbish out of the way on a Monday. What a way to start the week. And then what about Wednesday or Thursday? Let's use the remaining 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever to have dedicated teaching and learning time. And you could sell this to staff by instead of having a one hour meeting, have two 20 minute meetings, because I bet if you constrained it to that time, teachers work to those constraints. And especially if you know, right, I am focusing on teaching and learning here, you can get straight into it. So I wonder if that is possibly a solution, splitting the departmental meetings. So instead of having it all bundled in together, on one day you have all the admin stuff, on another day it's teaching and learning focused. And you come into that uh, teaching and learning focused meeting, and I spoke about this with with Oliver Lovell um, on on a previous interview, with a plan of action that you know, almost like you're planning a lesson, you know how teachers are gonna work together. Let's use John Mason. Visualize how that joint planning is going to happen. Because if you just say, right, you two teachers are gonna work on planning a lesson, anything could happen. Visualize, What's that going to look like when the teachers sit down? How's it going to be structured? Plan for it. And I reckon 20 minutes a week, we could start to tap into some of these benefits of this collaboratively planning that we see in these high performance regions without having an extra workload on our already uh, over, Jesus, well, yeah, oversubscribed uh, time. So there were my kind of three takeaways for, from the interview with Lucy. So all that remains for me to do is once again, thank Lucy. She's absolutely mega, mega, mega busy, but she found time to speak to me and I absolutely loved it and took loads from it. And please do read her book. It is absolutely wonderful. So easy to read and it's it's absolutely fascinating. And it's one of those books that as you read it, you keep thinking, well, I, I thought to myself two things. One, I thought, God, I wish, I wish our schools were like that. I wish our kids were like that. I wish we had time like that. But once you start to put that thought to one side, then you start to say, yeah actually but I can still tap into some of those benefits by doing this by doing this by doing this it's it's a really positive read I, I can't recommend it high enough and um, also thank you to PodcastThemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show and a big 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 thank you to all of my loyal listeners out there who keep listening to these shows and um, you're listening in your thousands the, the listening numbers just blow me away and thank you for, for all the kind messages to, to say that you're finding this useful and you're having great discussions with your colleagues it's making your journey into to work more pleasurable and all that kind of stuff it really does uh, mean a lot to me and, and make my day and if you have time to review this podcast on iTunes that's always appreciated and if you bought my book and enjoyed my book and you have time to review that on Amazon as well I know I'm pushing me luck here but that would be fantastic as well and I shall return with another fantastic guest next time take care of yourselves bye for now